please turn to Mark chapter 13. We're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And today we find ourselves at Mark 13 and we'll be going through verses 32 to verse 37. And here we come to the end of the Olivet Discourse, the conclusion of all things. We've been in a journey with the Lord in His Word and He launched us all the way to the future, to the very final generation that will witness the Lord's return. What a journey it's been. I don't know about you, but it certainly has affected myself and my life and my growth and uh, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to the end, the question that ought to be in our mind is this. So what? What do we get out of this? How do we apply studying the end times in our lives in a very real practical way? I mean, it's well and good that we work hard to study the text and be careful to exegete and explain every word in, 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 in the scripture and in its context. That's great. That's all great. But what's the point? How do we live this truth of the end times that we studied? How? Do, do we flex our prophecy muscles like some do and show off in front of others that somehow we know all mysteries? You know, there are unbelievers among us that even though we do love them, we love them, we love you. But they have not yet found salvation in Christ. And at any moment, they will slip into their judgment hugging their sin into their chest. How are they going to apply this truth that we've been learning so far? There are believers among us who are distracted by the glamour of this world. There are some among us who are caught up in their self-pity and personal troubles and their feelings are paralyzing them from serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Why are we studying the end times? Why? And if you ask Jesus, Jesus, why did you spend a whole chapter describing the events that your church will not go through? Why would you do this when you, Lord, know that we are, have our own problems that we are struggling with? And we can't even deal with half of them. Answer? In verse 37, the very last verse. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Keep watching. Always be ready for the return of Christ. In season and in out of season, in tribulation period and before the rapture. What I say to you, I say to all. Not just to believers, but to all. Not just to the last generation, but to all generations. In all ages and in all cultures. And what does Jesus say to all? Be 
on the alert. Watch out, he is coming. To be on alert, meaning to stay awake, to get ready, to keep your eyes wide open for his return, to never let your eyelids slumber, to be vigilant all the time as though today is your last day. This is the so what. This is the silver bullet. This is the home run. Yes, we will not go through the tribulation period, but hands up if you know the hour and the day when the Lord will come to rapture his church. So what is the application of studying the end times? You've got to keep watching. Keep awake. Never let your soul go to sleep. Put caffeine straight into your brain cells. We have to be in red alert all the time. This is the bottom line of this chapter and the end times. Do we believe that Jesus will come back at any moment? Are our souls awake? Are we ready for his return? Well, let's read the passage. Starting from verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Verse 33. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, all also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep, what I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. Yeah, line will be the mandate, the meaning, and then the main point. You'll get what I'm saying when we go through them. First, the mandate. What is the mandate in this passage? What is the imperative command? Now, let's just have a quick background. Now, earlier on, the disciples asked Jesus, what sign will accompany his return? Well, Jesus gave them signs, not just a singular, but plural sign. And when they asked him, when will he return? Uh, Jesus told them that the generation that will witness the calamities, the devastations, the bloodbath, um, all the cataclysmic events that will take place during the tribulation period, you know, this seven years period, seven year period of Jacob's trouble, it is the same generation that will witness the coming of the Messiah bursting into the sea. But Jesus, I mean, could you please be a bit more specific? What do you mean? I mean, you asked for a sign. I gave you many unmistakable visible signs. 
I mean, how specific do you want to be? I mean, maybe can you please give us a day, an hour? You know, um, what's exactly the date you're coming back? So we can add it to our Google calendar, you see? And verse 32, but of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. And Jesus says, in your wildest dream, will you ever know the day or the hour? How come? He tells us that the angels in heaven, I mean, these angels, they're mighty creatures. And by proximity to um, the, the throne of God, they are considered to be the most powerful creatures. And we know from verse 27 that these angels will personally take part of the second coming, yet they still don't know the exact moment of Jesus' return. I mean, even this verse tells us that Jesus himself does not know when Jesus will come back. How can we mere creatures will ever know? In no way. Now, I just want to pause here. I know that this is not the main theme of this passage, but I need to uh, pause and explain something here and defend the divinity of Christ. Because if you notice here, when Jesus said even a son does not know, uh, in no way is he denying his divinity. Jesus is the God-man. He's 100% God and 100% man. It was at his will when, when he was back here on earth that he restricted himself from exercising his divinity, his divine attributes for his own personal gain, personal benefits. He never did that. Only so that he would not take advantage and then, um, somehow, um, use these gifts, uh, for his own selfish purposes. Philippians 2, 6, it says, who although he existed, that's Jesus, in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. So what this is saying is that when Jesus restrained himself from certain knowledge, it's, it's not a sign of, of the absence of his divinity, no. It's the very evidence of his humility. And the reason why I want to pause and explain this is because there are some false teachers that would run quickly to that gospel of Mark, that verse that we read, and they they want to deny the divinity of Christ and they say, well, see, see, there are things that Jesus does not know. Therefore, Jesus is not God. I want to tell you the scripture makes it absolutely clear that the Son of God is co-equal with the Father in all of his attributes, including his knowledge. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, in whom that is Christ are hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we know that the scripture is full of examples of, um, of Jesus 
and how Jesus has all knowledge. He knows all things. Our Jesus is an all-knowing Jesus. In, in Matthew 9, 4, Jesus knew the hearts and thoughts of men. Matthew 21, verse 45, Jesus knew the hidden will of the Pharisees. John 1, 48, Jesus saw Nathanael under the fig tree. But the point is that Jesus never ever for once has he abused his divinity to take advantage of his divinity, if you like. And, um, and maybe perhaps when he's hungry, he would click his finger and say, well, you know, he's bread. I'm just going to eat it. Or perhaps just add more sauce and make a subway. Wow. No, he never did that. Right? He never took the path of least resistance. You know, when you play games and you can turn on the God mode, you know, the cheat mode so you can run through your enemies unharmed. Jesus never did that. Why? Because he wants to truly represent us before the Father as a sinless lamb without blemish. So to bear all our sins as a true man, yet he's truly God. So for Jesus, to say that he didn't know the day or the hour of his second coming, this should not lead us in any way to dishonor him or to limit him in any way, but to praise him all the more and to esteem him. That he voluntarily set aside his divinity because he wanted to be like us in every way. And mind you, I do want to add one more thing here because I do understand that some people also mis misunderstand. Do you know that we live now post the resurrection, right? Now, after the resurrection, it's a different story. It's a whole different ballgame. Because now, Jesus has reclaimed all authority and all knowledge. There's no need for him to restrain himself from knowing anything. Brothers, we must never forget that Christ now is seated at the right hand of the Father, co-equal with Father, as a glorious God, eternal God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present God. Right? So now he knows when he will come back. Before he didn't. But now, post-resurrection and ascension, he knows all things. So, back to verse 32. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven. And back then, before his death and resurrection, nor the Son, but the Father alone. So what's the point here? Why is Jesus telling us this? We'll continue reading verse 33. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know. You see, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. If the angels and the Son of God do not know the second coming, how in the world do you think us as puny people would ever know the day or the hour? So what is he saying? He's saying this, don't even bother trying to figure out the day and time, day and hour. You know, many, many cults, they, they claim to know, right? 
and, and, and they waste many endless hours and endless papers and inks and they, they write so many books to tell us the day and the hour. Read Jesus' lips. No one knows, right? So don't even try to figure it out. Well, what should we do then? If we do not try to figure it out, what should we do? Well, since no one knows, then in verse 33, Jesus then front loads this sentence with double imperative commands. And he says, take heed. Keep on the alert. Is it this Oliver discourse? Jesus says this. We're doing a quick recap now. In verse 5, see to it that no one misleads you. Verse 9, be on your guard. Verse 23, but take heed. Verse 33, take heed, keep on the alert. Verse 35, therefore be on the alert. Then he finished this Oliver Discourse with 37. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. And then that means Jesus puts these warnings in both sides as brackets for this Oliver Discourse. And it kind of looks like every time he takes a breath in, he gives again the same warning. It's like, you know, he takes a needle and then he interwovens the thread of these warnings into the very fabric of this chapter. Take heed. Be on alert. All of you be on alert. What is Jesus trying to say to us by this? Well, what part of be on alert don't we understand? Now notice this. To say in 33, take heed, keep on the alert. He says, for well, you do not know when the appointed time will come. Now, if you put it in a negative, in a reverse, then had he told us the exact day or hour of his coming, be the end age or the rapture of the church, we would have been reluctant to take heed, right? We wouldn't want to be on alert. No, rather, we would be careless, we would be lethargic in our spiritual warfare. You want to be hot on fire for God? Take heed. Be on alert. Do you want to have this zealous spirit? You want to be longing, eager to serve the Lord all the days of your lives? Take heed. Keep an alert. Well, what does it mean to take heed and keep an alert? Well, this is the mandate. Mandate to take heed, keep an alert. Well, what does it mean? We come to the meaning now, the second point, because in Jesus here does not leave us uh, confused as what he means by these two commands. He Now he helps us to understand and grasp 
what he's trying to say by taking heed and keeping alert. So what does he do? He gives us a parable in verse 34. And what I want to do for, um, now is I want to read this parable, then I'm going to break it down for you to understand what this imperative commands mean. So verse 34, it says, It is like a man away on a journey who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. So we'll break it down now. We'll take it sentence by sentence. It is like a man away on a journey. Now, what do we know about this man? We know that this man is a master, right? He's got a few slaves, right? And he also owns a house. He leaves a house. So this master, who's this master? There's no room to doubt that it's Jesus and it's Jesus alone. There's no other. This is no other but Jesus Christ, the Son of God who upon leaving his house, he left earth, right? He left earth 2,000 years ago and he ascended to the highest of heaven. Then he says here, putting his slaves in charge. Now, who are his slaves? It's every one of us. It's everyone. It's It's... It's not just believers. Unbelievers are included in this. Those who will reject Christ and will continue to reject him are included in this parable. How do we know that? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew, the parallel account, Matthew gives us even um, a greater details of this parable. Right? It's a, it's a, it's a more detailed version of this parable. And let me read to you part of this parable in the Gospel of Matthew 24, starting from verse 48. And it says here, but if that evil slave, evil slave, that's the unbeliever here, right? Says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he doesn't expect him at an hour which he does not know. And verse 51, and will cut him in pieces. It's complete separation. Just cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Clearly, these are unbelievers here that we're talking about. They're unbelieving slaves. Because no believer will ever go to hell, right? There's no one exempted here. How we need to understand that Jesus is Lord of all, whether we recognize it or not. Amen. Embrace it or not, the Lordship of Christ is a matter of fact. It is not a matter of faith. Jesus is Lord over your boss at work, your unbelieving spouse at home. Jesus is Lord over Dan Andrew, Oscar Morrison. He is the master of all governmental authorities. And Jesus here, our master, he tells us that he put us in charge. You know that Jesus is the one that gave us 
everything that we have. It's the Son of God. He gave us life, breath, talents, skills. It is Jesus that gave us physical strength, stamina. He gave us our children. He gave us possessions. He gave us cars and houses. It is Him. It is from Him that we have all these things. He gave us eyes to see, feet to walk, mouth to speak. And, and for those of us who are believers, he, he is the one that gave us spiritual gifts, gift of encouragement, gift of administration, gift of mercy. Now the question is why? Why do he give us all these things? Why? They're wonderful things. Why do he give it to us? Continue on, breaking down this parable, and he says, assigning to each one his task. You see, you and I have a task from the Lord. And it's kind of like Jesus is saying here, here you go. I blessed you with all these privileges. Enjoy them. But in enjoying them, you have got to use them to fulfill your task, right? Well, use them for who? Who gets to dictate how to use them? Us? No. We're the slaves. Right? The master does. Colossians 1.16. Let me read to this quickly. I'm just replacing the first, uh, the person pronoun. It says, For by Christ all things were created. And in the same verse at the end of it, it says, All things have been created through Christ. And get this. You ready for this? This is important. And for Christ, you're given everything by Christ to serve Christ. So what does it mean to take heed? To take heed is to live for Christ, to serve Christ as though he is our master and we are his slaves, investing all of our lives, all of our possessions, for him. We work for him as though he might come back today. And so we work till we drop dead. Let me help you with the flow so you can see it. We don't know when the master is coming back. And because we don't know, therefore, he might come back today. And because he might come back today, like Churchill put it, we offer Jesus, our master, nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat to serve our master with all our might, all our strength that God gives us. And we do that, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's what it means to take heed. Master, I've packed my sleeping bag, my toothbrush, and I'm ready for you to dispatch me wherever you please, Lord. You tell me where I go. 
And no matter the price I pay or the distance I travel or the time it takes, Master, you command me, I'm your slave, I'll obey. And what does it mean to keep on the alert? We'll go back now to Mark and we'll continue on with the parable. And the next phrase is also commanding the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. To stay on the alert. Hear these words again. To stay on the alert. It's kind of sprinkled all over these chapters like landmine ready to explode in our hearts at any time. To, to be on the alert is, is, is the main thing. What does it mean to be on the alert? It's to be wide awake, to keep one's eyes wide open. The doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Back in those days, when the master of a house would leave this house and goes for a journey. What he, uh, what they used to do is that they used to place one of their slaves at the outer gate to make sure they look after the things that are going into the house and and out of the house. But one of the primary purposes to place um, a doorkeeper at the gate, believe it or not, is that for this doorkeeper to be ready to welcome the return of his master. And because he doesn't know, there are no phones back then. He don't, the master doesn't SMS. He doesn't send an email. He doesn't know. And because he doesn't know when the master is returning, he's always in the lookout. He's always watching. The master is the one who feeds him. The master is the one that protects the slave. He owns the slave. He bought this slave, and this slave feels like he's lost without his master. And he knows that the master loves it when, when him, being a doorkeeper, is always watching for his return. And this master loves his this sorry, this slave loves his master. So what does he do? He's eager, longing for his master to come back home. And so this doorkeeper is standing there, right at the gate, right at the very edge of this gate. And he's always watching, never distracted. Look, who's coming? Who's there? Someone is coming from afar. Is this my master? No, it's not my master. Well, what do I do? Keep watching. Keep being in the lookout for the master's return. That's the meaning. So what's the main point? We'll come to the third point now. The main point. And now Jesus brings it home. Read with me. Verse 35. The first word, therefore, in conclusion, the main point. This is the way of application. And he says this, be on the alert again. You slaves, work for me and watch. Serve me and see 
Labor for me and look out. Work and watch. Serve and see. Labor and look out. You keep serving me as though it is your last day today. As, as well as that, keep on the lookout for my return as though it's this hour I will come back. Why? He tells us why. But you do not know. You just have no idea when the master of the house is coming. Whether in the evening, at midnight, when the rooster crows or in the morning. Let's just explain this very quickly so we understand what Jesus is saying to them. Um, back again in those days, um, the Romans, they, they broke down the, um, 12 hours from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. into four periods. So you got 12 hours, 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., you have four periods. The evening is 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The midnight is from 9 to 12 a.m. The rooster crows, meaning it's from 12 to 3 a.m. and the morning, is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that's kind of around the time when people back then generally uh, would go to bed. They would sleep around this time. And Jesus is basically saying here that his coming might be in the middle of the night when most people are asleep. And so he says in verse 36, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. You're not an alert, you're asleep. Well, what a terrible thing for the master to come back home and find his doorkeeper snoring. Now, what does it mean to be asleep? It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want us to go to bed at night and tuck yourself in, you know, in that quilt and nice and make you nice and warm. It doesn't mean that. Looking at Luke, parallel account in Luke, Luke tells us, be on guard. Luke tells us, pay attention. And in that same account, Luke helps us to understand what it means to be asleep. He doesn't use the word asleep, but this is what he uses. So that your hearts will not be weighted down with dissipation and drunkenness and worries of life. And that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. Watch out that this day would not come upon you suddenly like a trap. To be asleep is to be complacent. To be apathetic towards Jesus. To be asleep, it means you're, you're no longer eager for Jesus' return. It means you lost the interest. You're caught up in, in the affairs of this world. Something has taken away your affection for Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be asleep. It means. You're living a life of this rich, foolish man who wasn't an alert 
that at any moment, his master will come back. You remember this story, right? In Luke 12. I want to give you this. I want to read to you just part of this parable that Jesus gave just to give you an example of a sleepy soul. What a sleepy soul looks like. Luke 12 verse 18. That rich man was saying to himself, this is what I will do. So he brought his portfolio and he's going to give his financial plan. You know, he's thinking about his financial plan. He says this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. Hmm? He, he doesn't sin. He's not stealing. He's not murdering anybody. He's not, he's not robbing somebody's house or something. No. He seems to be a decent man. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, be merry. Meaning, he's asleep. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will earn what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Here is a drowsy. Sleepy soul. Here is a man who was not an alert that God will come at any moment, so he didn't serve Christ with his life. And then Jesus finishes off this passage for us in Mark 13 and verse 37, and he says, What I say to you, I say to all. That includes you and I. That includes every single person in this room. Does it not? Be on the alert. Brothers, we've got to be on alert. We've got to be awake. That is to say, to convince your heart and my heart again and again that there is no pleasure in life, in this life, or the life to come greater than to know Christ. That nothing satisfies the aching of our cravings but Christ and Christ alone. And so what do we do when we're in alert? What do you do? You're standing on your tippy toes. Your eyes are gazing upon the skies. Your hands are up in the air. You're eagerly longing for that Savior to return, ready for him to snatch you at any moment. And in cultivating his truth, nothing then ought to matter to you. Nothing. But to obey your master. 
That's the main point. This is a run home. This is a silver bullet. So by way of application, here are a couple of things to think about. Number one, we are to serve Christ wholeheartedly as his slaves. Let me reflect on this on a, on a maybe slightly different angle. A devil will come and will throw at you your guilt like mud. And he would say to you, take a look at yourself. How can you serve Christ wholeheartedly when, when you're such an unworthy sinner? It's not good. You can say to him, Jesus' blood speaks for me. Hmm? Jesus' blood speaks for me. Jesus bore my sins and he nailed my guilt on that tree when he set me free from sin and death. He purchased me with his own precious blood and now he owns me. He bore me. I am his slave for two reasons, by means of creation, another by means of recreation. And because he lives in me, my heart is filled with gratitude. And this same master has promised to come back and take me at any moment. How should I respond to such glorious life but to gladly serve my Savior with all of my heart? Let the devil know. That when we serve Christ wholeheartedly, we serve Him, not because we are worthy sinners, but because He is such a worthy Savior. We are to serve Christ wholeheartedly as His slaves. Number two, we are to be on the alert for His return, as the doorkeeper was on the alert for the return of His Master. Let me put it this way. Another devil comes at you and says to you, you know what, man? There are really awesome pleasures in this world. Worldly ease, worldly comfort. There's pleasure in working hard for bigger homes. I mean, think about it. It's not a sin. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have this wonderful Beautiful couch or maybe larger TV. That's not a sin. I've got a big TV. I think I do. And he goes, well, but you got to stop watching, right? you got to stop serving Christ so you can pay off for these things. Mm, now it's a problem. What do you do? You tell him this. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? My Savior is coming at an hour that I do not expect. And when He comes back, all these fleeting pleasures of this world will burn into ashes when He comes back and takes me home. He promised that the harder I work for Him on this side of eternity, the greater my eternal rewards will be on the other side. But wait, devil, there is more. There is more. 
Because this same Savior, he said in John 4.13, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, right? Any pleasure of this world, it's a deceiving pleasure. It demands more of you until it depletes all of your strength and vitality. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But that water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. He is the only being that truly satisfies the longing of my heart. His presence in my life quenches the thirst of my heart. And yet, are you ready for this? This is the punchline now. Even though this is the case, and even with the greatest satisfaction, and even the deepest delight I would ever experience in Him, in this broken world, brothers, sisters, it's just a glimpse. It's just a sample of how much of a greater joy, greater satisfaction I will have in Him for eternity to come. I just have to be faithful, working for him now. J.C. Ryle, he gave sobering questions. As we're slowly landing this plane, coming to the end of this message, he says this, Are we looking for our Savior's return? Do we long for his appearing? Can we say with sincerity, come, Lord Jesus? Do we live as if we expected Christ to come again? These are questions which demand serious consideration. And then he says, may we give them the attention which they deserve. Why is it important to be on alert? Why is it important? Let me give you three reasons, very quick reasons, trust me. Why it is so beneficial for us to always keep watching, being on alert for the coming of Christ. Number one, it gives endurance to our walk with God, brothers and sisters. It gives endurance to our walk with God, meaning it recharges the holy affection of our batteries. It refuels our hearts to be so eager and to always commit it into your mind that Jesus will come back any moment. It does to our soul what a holiday does to our bodies. It reignites and it revitalizes our faithfulness to our master. Number two, being eager, watching the Savior's return. It puts joy in our labor. You know, to, to be spiritually asleep is to be complacent and apathetic, right? And if you've ever experienced this and yet you're still serving the Lord, you, you realize that the service becomes bitter, joyless, such a heavy burden. But being always on the alert that Jesus will come at any minute, it fills our hearts with hope. It turns 
our mundane service to a worship service. It has a way of reminding us that there is a greater purpose to live for. So it fills our labor with joy. And number three, it corrects our priorities in our lives. Somehow, when we begin to think about Jesus' second coming and that he may come at any moment, there is a way in it that it aligns what we deem to be important to what God says important. I'll give you a couple of examples. Come on. Are you serious? You've already gone to a morning service. You're going to go back to the evening service? Huh. Just, just relax. Just relax a little bit, man. And your response would be, my master, Jesus, might come back today. Do you really think I would rather for him to come and see me relax like a lazy slave while my brothers in Christ are worshipping him? Really? Another example. Are you really going to make another soup for your sister who's sick? Seriously? Come on. Stay with me. Let's watch the next episode. It's very entertaining, the next episode, isn't it? And your reply would be, Jesus is, is my Lord. He's the one that I love, in whom are, is all my delight. And this Jesus might come back today. He promised that he will come back with my rewards with him. Should I not please him by serving my sister who needs help rather than wasting another hour of my life watching another useless episode? You see, it corrects our priorities. Brothers, only every once in a while, when we're fatigued and our bodies are completely exhausted, are we ever to kind of relax? But otherwise, let us go down in history to be the generation that earnestly anticipated the return of Christ and that led us to labor even more intensely for Him, even to the point that our lifespan will be slashed in half. Who cares? And we would do that cheerfully and freely because it's worth it. Jonathan Edwards, he prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, stamp eternity on, on my eyeballs. But I want to reason with you, brothers and sisters. I want to reason with you. If Jonathan Edwards prayed this prayer in a generation that is by far more godly than our generation, then what kind of prayer should we then pray when we see sin running rampant? Fleshly pleasures are advertising every billboard all around us. Should we not cry to God all the more with our fists slamming upon the gates of heaven, pounding this thing? 
pleading with our Heavenly Father, saying to Him, God, not only do we beg you to stamp the second coming of Christ on our eyeballs, but write them on our eyelids, burn them into our hearts, tattoo them in our lips, stable them on our back. Lord, let it be the first thought of our minds when we wake up. Let it be the highest goal. The greatest purpose is to want to see our Savior face to face so that we would please Him in everything that we do. I just want to quickly turn to unbelievers in this room. Cannot let this pass by without addressing those whom we love. Unbelievers, are you ready? Are you ready? If you haven't come to Christ to seek salvation, are you ready? Are you an alert? You've got to be an alert. You've got to be ready. Say, what do you mean ready? I'm not a Christian. Yeah, I understand you're not a Christian. But are you ready? Are you ready for the onslaught when he burst into the sea? Are you ready for that? Are you ready that when he comes, that you will be wrapped up and cast into hell? You say, well, what do I have to do to be ready for that? I mean, can anybody be ready for this? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. All you need to do, by the way, to go to hell is to be cast into hell is just to continue to love your sin, continue to love your pride, your selfishness, continue to love your houses and cars. He will do everything to make sure that your little cell in hell is ready for you. In fact, as we speak right now, the knob of this fiery furnace is turned to max. Your earthly body will be infused with power so to make sure that you will feel the pain of hell yet without dying. You don't need to do anything. You don't even need to RSVP. All is ready. The wrath will be ready. The fire is ready. The darkness is ready. Your punishment is at hand and your eternal loneliness is calling for you. The screaming and the gnashing of teeth is prepared for your coming. All you need to do is absolutely nothing. Is this what you want? Is this what you want? I plead with you. Don't go that way. Scripture says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. I plead with you. Do not harden your heart. Let me tell you something crucially important, lest you misunderstand me. Loving your sin will lead you to hell. Hating your sin will never lead you to heaven. Loving your sin will lead you to hell. But it is Christ and Christ alone. Apart from who you are and what is inside of you, it is Christ alone who has the power 
to save you from such a miserable state and take you to heaven. Put your trust in him. Put your trust in the only one that is able to turn your world upside down from mourning into joyful life. Come to Christ. He alone has the power to even change your love for sin to hatred towards your sin. He came 2,000 years ago just to show you the power of his salvation. He came 2,000 years ago. Live the perfect life that none of us could ever live. He obeyed God in every way that we disobeyed him. 33 years later, he was hung on that tree. And when he was hung on that tree, every man before Jesus coming to earth and every man after Jesus came to earth, every man that put his trust in that Savior, Jesus alone single-handedly carried all of their sins, presented himself before the Father as an offering, and he alone satisfied God's justice. The wrath of God was poured down upon Jesus Christ, and he paid the price for the sins of those that will put their trust in him. You see? It is not your love for righteousness that would save you. It is Jesus Christ and what he's done on the cross that is able to save you. I plead with you that you will come to him when. Hands up if you know whether you're going to die or live tomorrow. You just don't know. When? Today. Even right now. Put your trust in Christ. And he would save you in this moment. He would grant you eternal life. Be on the alert. Come to him now. That's the only way that you could be on the alert. You come to Christ now as sinful as you are. Offer it to him and he will take all of your sins. Don't come to him as though that you are a righteous person. He won't accept you. Don't come to him as though that you're a humble person. Come to him with your pride. Come to him with your selfishness. Hand him over to him. And he will work things out. He will turn you from a wicked man into a godly man. From a man who hated God all your life to a man that loves God. That's his business. That He's the surgeon. He will do this operation. What you need to do is you're commanded to trust him. You're commanded to believe in him. And he will do everything required to make you a holy man. Amen. This is the gospel. This is the message. This is what we need to learn and what the outcome is of the end times. Let's pray. Lord God, here we are, Lord. And as we have finished this marvelous chapter, chapter 13 of Gospel of Mark, Lord, what an ending, what an application. Thank you, Lord, that you did not leave it for us, that we would make our own applications. 
Lord, we come to you this morning and we see that we've got to be an alert. We've got to take heed. You are coming back at a time that we do not expect. Help us, Lord, to live this holy life. Help us, Lord, give us the strength that we need in order to apply this truth in our lives. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.